You are listening to the Enormocast. The Royal We here at the Enormocast want you, dear listener, to know that while making some of the best and most reliable climbing gear in the world, Black Diamond is also supporting the climbing community in many bold and generous ways. Of course, Black Diamond supports big players like the Access Fund, but also littler crews like the Salt Lake Climbers Alliance. That support can look like wads of cash, amplifying an org's messages, lobbying politicians, or taking stands against billion-dollar boulder-destroying gondola projects. Basically, it's Black Diamond pushing their weight around to protect access. And the climbers at BD have not just talked the talk with BIPOC climbers, but partnered with Climbers for Change to offer Jim to Craig grants to underserved communities. They have joined with the AMGA to offer SPI and Rock Guide scholarships that include door-to-door funding for participants. BD also supports other affinity groups, including Memphis Rocks, the Adaptive Climbing Group, and She Moves Mountains. And the environmental orgs they support are too many to list here. So if you want to know how the folks at Black Diamond are walking the walk for the community, go to blackdiamondequipment.com and search under About Us for more information on where they're helping out. And maybe make a suggestion or get involved yourself. Well, hi there, folks. It's me, your Yeti Yonder Water Bottle. And I hope you don't mind me woodshedding some of these tasty blues riffs while we talk. Now you might be thinking, well, golly, Yonder, you play guitar too? You're the most amazing water bottle I've ever laid my thirsty eyes upon. And while it's true, I am amazing, it's not my guitar chops that get me there. It might be my convenient and clippable handle. It might be that I come in several sizes, but I'm betting it's my two holes that make me amazing. I got a big hole for filling and a small hole for swilling. And that big hole means you can drop in your drink mix, ice, or whatever other special potion you think might get you to the chains. Also, when you forget about me in your pack for three weeks, it makes cleaning the scuzz out that much easier. And then, the small hole means you can enjoy splash-free guzzling after that particularly cotton-mouth-inducing lead you just sent, you sick bird. Check me out and all the amazingly well-built and innovative products at Yeti.com or a fine outdoor retailer near you. And tell them Yonder sent you. No, seriously, try that and see what kind of looks you get. All right, boys, let's take them out of here. One, two, three... Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, it out. That's a big nice. place. You sold it's it out. Like I'll say, you really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, La Sportiva, and with support from Maxim Ropes. Maxim has been keeping the normal cast off the deck since 2012. And now we can also thank the chill folks at Yeti. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and entry Normo at checkout to get a great deal on great coffee 
and to support the EnormaCast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the EnormaCast. This is your host, Chris Galoose. It is November 8th, 2023, about 1 o'clock here in Colorado, and this is episode 274 of the EnormaCast. A conversation with Swiss climber, alpinist, guide, Roger Schally. That's right, connecting across the ocean with Switzerland for this one. Listener suggestion, and when I got it, I immediately popped onto Instagram and sent Roger a message, and within minutes, he said, yeah, sure, I'll do that, which is the kind of response I like. I appreciate it. People don't beat around the bush. Anyway, we had a really good time, and I totally appreciate the fact that English is his at least second language. I think there's there's a few more ahead of it, actually. But he came on and gave us a good hour and 15 in English, which I appreciate. I'm sure that gets a little bit tiring after a while. Anyhow, before we get to that, I want to remind you that I'm going to be at the Michigan Ice Fest. The Michigan Ice Festival is February 7th to the 11th, 2024. I will be there in an official capacity doing things. I'm not exactly sure what those things are. Some live stuff. Um, I'm not a speaker. I think we're doing like some separate breakout sort of a normal cast things. And, uh, you know, I'll be hanging around drinking coffee, drinking beer, complaining about the humidity, whatever. I'll probably go ice climbing too. Yes, sirree. Going ice climbing. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, my Midwest homies, you know, I've got a really great following in the Midwest. I think podcasts are part of your daily climbing psych more so than maybe out west where it's easier to go climbing. But yeah, I know you feel lonely out there in the Midwest sometimes as climbers. Also, it's kind of weird how like, especially in the upper Midwest, there's sort of this just general disdain from the populace about exercise. Have you noticed that? It's It kind of happens out in the West too with, with like the hardcore rednecks. Like they see you riding your bike or whatever and they just, it just makes them angry for some reason. You know, they'll buzz you with their truck or roll coal on you or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, it's weird. Just like this anti-exercise, even if it's someone else doing it. So anyway, I feel you guys in the Midwest. So what I'm here for is try to insert some climbing psych into your daily lives when you can't get to uh, whatever little crag you go to. I know it's hard for me not to go off on your climbing opportunities. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm more commiserating than anything. So come check out the Michigan Ice Festival and uh, say hi if you're up there. We can uh, get drunk and argue about how great the climbing is in eastern Minnesota or wherever it is you live. February 7th to the 11th. All right. Let's get to Roger Shawley. Do you know that name? You've probably seen pictures of him. Big smile, curly hair, not small muscles on this guy. And of course, since he's Swiss, he'll be in perfectly fit, very high-tech, brightly colored clothing. The Europeans in general seem to love the brightly colored clothing, don't they? Not so much over here in the U.S. I'll admit I get a little intimidated by these people. They seem to have been uh, bred in a lab to send NAR, and it doesn't have anything to do with the junk show type climbing that I do. But as soon as Roger came on the screen, I knew that I was just talking to another dude who loves to climb. And as usual, I found more in common with this guy than not. Isn't that beautiful? Climbing brings us all together. And Roger brought it with some deep reflections, some great stories, some good laughs. Even though he was running a language that he's not used to, it gave us a full 
solid cross-cultural Enormacast here. So I hope you enjoy it, this conversation with Roger Shawley. When you pull a new pair of mountain boots or climbing shoes from the box, do the possibilities for adventure seize your soul? Do you deeply inhale the essence and quality through your flared nostrils? Do you have to quell the urge to strip to your skivvies, pull them on, and bound around the house like a proud, lithe gazelle, shouting, Look at me, look at me, look at me, I'm free! Well, if you answered no, or even maybe, to any of these questions, then you're probably not wearing Sportivas. Yet. You see, the euphoria of getting a new pair of Sportivas, the quality, the style, the reservoir of potential energy simmering in their souls has been known to inspire mania, from the crustiest alpinist to the most sullen, sad-faced sport climber. So if you want to feel unadulterated, childlike joy in your life again, well, maybe put down your phone for five goddamn minutes. Or go to Sportiva.com, or better yet, your favorite shop, and stop, stare, smell, feel a new pair of Sportiva shoes. And then hurry to the counter and buy them before security gets there. They throw around this Mr. Iger thing in some of your media. I don't know how you feel about that, but certainly the Iger is this magic mountain for you. Um, this thing that's been a part of your life almost forever. Yeah. I mean, were you actually born there under the Iger on its slope somewhere, you know, like maybe in one of the Bibby caves? I'm not sure uh, where that comes <laughs> yeah. from, but um, how close was your, your upbringing to the sort of shadow of the Iger? First of all, this Mr. Iger is something kind of which doesn't come from my side of all. There is, <laughs> I know, I'm sure it There doesn't. was never a Mr. Iger and there will never be a Mr. Iger. Iger is himself, you know, and <laughs> always just humble. Right. <laughs> and yeah, uh, especially on the more serious central routes, there is always a big adventure. It's different mm-hmm. on the sport route. But I uh, grew up uh, two valley to the north and I could see always through the Iger north face. It's a... Uh, obvious big wall and which I was dreaming since I was a kid when we had this long rich walk with my father and yeah then I started to climb with him and later I moved to Interlaken and was living in Grindelwald and with 18 or 19 I climbed the first time the the classic Heckmeyer route yeah this was my entrance to this um, long journey and through all this history. The history is such an important part of of the Iger early on in my climbing career you know, I read, I don't know, one of the books, The Murder Wall, The Mordwan, something like that, one of the hi- historical books. And, you know, people on this show, I think, are relatively steeped in, in climbing history. But in case we're not, I mean, the, the wall had this tremendously tragic reputation for, for decades, um, having, you know, the first multiple attempts end in tragedy, some of the most famous rescue mm-hmm. attempts and things in, in Alpine history, really, with like Tony Kurtz and, and those yeah. things. As a kid and getting into climbing and, and, you know, this first ridge walk on it, which I think happened when you were like young teens, maybe 13, 12, 13, something like that. Were you aware as a kid, the reputation of, of this peak, you know, quote unquote, you're dreaming of it. Was that ever punctuated by people warning you or or your own warnings about the history of the mountain and and also if you lived there you saw what was going on i mean things happen on that peak every season it seems like uh honestly no <laughs> i mean if you raised up or grown in 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 the bottom of the eiger in grindelwald and 
There, of course, you know all the bad stories and back in the days, the mountain climbers, there were farmers and for them it was kind of not really allowed to to, to rescue people like Tony Coors back in the days. And uh, mm-hmm. even in my generation around 2000, it was there was still kind of just a few little climbers, they touched the North Wall. I was not grown up in Grindelwald, so I was just young and free and had, I felt um, living my dreams and felt like <laughs> undiable in these days when I started climbing. And yeah, I ne- didn't really care about the history. I uh, I just climbed and I knew there was a, was a lot of bad stories. And later on, I could double Tony Kurtz uh, with some good friends like Simon Antematten and uh, later on, I realized that this that there is a way more story and dramas in the Eiger. Later on, I started to read all these bad stories. But uh, at the beginning, when I started to climb and to dream, I was just go for it and uh, also start climbing with, with Ueli there, Steck, back in the days. I helped him on his direct line, the young spider. And for me, was, the Eiger was just a normal wall to express all my needs and skills in winter and summer. It's it's an interesting thought to have this centered climbing culture that I think that, you know, you have in that region. You know, the Alps are literally, you know, as far as modern climbing is concerned, we call it alpinism because because of the word Alps, it comes from there. And I don't think we really have such a place or a culture here in the U.S. where people are living sort of under these things that have been a part of everyday life. So can you describe a little bit about that culture? I mean, was climbing something that was a foregone conclusion for you as you were growing up? Did your friends of your age have the same kind of desires that you had or were like most places here in the United States was being a climber, especially, you know, this was a couple decades ago, a few decades ago, you know, was it still a bit of an outlier to be a young kid of 10, 11, 12, dreaming of these sorts of things? From the Swiss Alpine Club, Club we have these Yaus teams and we learned quite from the basic about the culture and the risk from the mountains. And the, most of the people read the story and we tell the story further. And the older people, they want to make us aware of the risk we have. And mm-hmm. often in our culture, if you're a really motivated climber, to making a step towards a mountain guide and still there is a big education <laughs> about risk management and not only mm-hmm. pushing and, and climb hard. Definitely want to say we are having a good good um, sense for for mountaineering mm-hmm. and a respectful way for it. And w- when I started climbing, I uh, I had no climbing gym around. So I, I learned to climb in the mountains and I grew up with, with all the risk and with the weather and with the rockfall and with the icefall. Yeah, somehow I'm still I'm still here. I mean, I really tried to risk management my life, and mm-hmm. um, I had a bad accident when I was 16. And yeah, I make and did a mountain guide course with 19 to 21. And I guess because of this uh, education and uh, mountain guide school and with Max, I learned to to be aware that this is not a playground. So it's not a kindergarten. The North mm-hmm. Face and the Alps. What was the nature of that of that accident? You know, that would have been pretty early in your career, three years. Yeah, I was I was just sixteen, and I, mm-hmm. I had uh, I, for my birthday present, I came from my father a sixty meter rope. This was new. Before then, we only had fifty meter ropes, and just on my home valley, we had needles that were thirty meters high, and 
My older friend uh, was for me and a mentor. I was proud to climb with him. And nobody learned me really how to uh, untie and tighten the rope to, to get lowered off from a single pitch. So I uh, did this somehow and I didn't did a double check and I was laying myself back. And the guy uh, had me untied. He thought I will, I will be laying him up to the summit and we will repel down on the other side, which is a shorter way. So finally, I just fall down, top rope, slightly overhanging. I didn't never touch the rock for 30 meters and I land, landed on a steep gravel field. And yeah, this was a, this was a <laughs> close call for sure. Yeah, um, I mean, what, what, but what happened? Like, you know, why didn't you die? I guess would be the question. I mean, how bad was, um, the, was your injury? I mean, I, I, I still, if I'm up there, it's hard to believe that it's, right. it's that you awake after a 30 meter fall and it's proper yeah. 30 meter. It's not 25. <laughs> and I landed be- between next to a huge boulder block and in a steep gravel field. And somehow with the rope helped me to not turn around. And my friend, he, he told me he touched me on the last moment and I landed on my feet in this deep gravel field. And I just had two open uh, broken legs mm. and that's it. And yeah, that's, that's was about my, my first really intense bad climbing experience. And, uh, I had just finished my obligatory school time and hoped that I can climb the whole summer. And my first thought was that I can't climb this summer. So I was still in this really young, undiable um, <laughs> right. mode, which my biggest problem was to, uh, to give my friends my 60 meter rope when they were visiting me in the hospital and, uh, right. I had never thought that I could lose a leg or couldn't walk anymore. Wow. So you, you have two open fractures of your legs. No, it was only one. Oh, one. one. Okay. Cut, and one was normal, but I had two okay. broken legs. Yeah. Okay. One open fracture. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and the other leg broken and your first thought is like, oh man, I'm not going to be able to climb anymore this summer. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, I, I still can't believe that this was my... <laughs> I was really psyched for climbing. <laughs> okay, awesome. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's interesting. I I have a story where I broke, I uh, had a open fracture of my foot actually from a motorcycle accident, and uh, <laughs> I was I was younger than that. I was only in eighth grade, but I was I was laying in this this kind of muddy puddle that I fell into, and my first thought was I have to get the cigarettes out of my my sock because I I had them like tucked in my sock. Okay. And I was like, my parent, my parents can't find out about the smokes. And so, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so it is funny. You're just like, I'm like laying there bleeding and I'm like, gotta get those, get rid of those cigs. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good story too. Yeah. You're, you're like immortal. You're just like, I'm going to be fine as long as I don't get in trouble. <laughs> and you're going to be like, hopefully I'll be able to climb again this summer. But um, yeah. well, <laughs> well, that's a, that's an intense, you know, way to kind of, be introduced to the dangers of the sport and uh i mean ha- what about the fall the residual i mean you've become this incredible workhorse mountain guide do the your legs ever bother you in that sense or was you, you were you young enough to mostly just uh to heal up i i guess i was insanely lucky i mean i was just lucky with the the doctor he had a good day and and yeah, I was waking up in the hospital and I, I asked the guy when I can climb again. And then all the doctors, there were four of them, told me, you have to be lucky if you can walk again. Maybe if you have an infection or anything, uh, we need to have make a transplantation with the skin and stuff. And maybe uh, 
there's a high chance that we have to make your leg stiff. In the worst mm -hmm. case, we have to take it off. So I realized that this is not just a, uh, a little accident, but my mom took a lot of care about the infection and uh, it healed really fast. And I uh, went for a while in the wheelchair and I started my, my apprenticeship as a carpenter and in a wheelchair. And they, would, uh, they, they looked at me quite with big eyes if I'm not in the wrong schoolroom on the first day and said, no, no, I, I will walk again soon. So, but then I, yeah, I started to climb after six months, slowly top roping, but uh, somehow I often feel like, I mean, I, I, Uli started to climb on the same mountains. He just grown up on the other side and mm -hmm. he started already free solo scrambling and, and climbing. And this was kind of something which inspired me from the beginning Mm -hmm. But from this moment, it was a small uh, agreement myself. If I have the honor to climb again without big problems, I will take way more care and not climb free solo and stuff like this. And somehow, pretty sure because of this accident, I'm now 40, uh, 45 years old. Mm -hmm. Because if you're 20 and you feel like undiable, which I didn't felt anymore. Mm -hmm. But it definitely felt like undiable. And I climbed sometimes with him and I often have seen how much he pushed and climbed on the edge. Yeah, I guess on, on the other hand, I was lucky that I had this accident. Sure. Yeah, like, like I said, an early warning to, uh, to the dangers. Yeah, I mean, and, and to do as much climbing as you have done and and B45 is no, you know, it's not, I've, I've even read, you know, you've, you've felt that of course luck comes into, uh, comes into climbing, but, um, decisions are also, you know, the basis of how we navigate through the mountains and mm. a little bit of luck and, and good decisions, you know, you've arrived here at 45 and, and, uh, I hope, yeah, I'm certain that you appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I do. I often, my thought it's, I just do it a little bit better if other people had accident, but at the end, you just realize you're in the same boat, you know, we're all in the same boat, people, they do mountaineering and you just realize this if you get older. Yeah. Especially someone who climbs, I mean, you were talking about the middle area, uh, of the, of the Eiger, you know, famous for, for rockfall and things like that. And there's, there's a point at which you're in a bit of a shooting gallery when you're in the big mountains and, uh, anything can happen sort of, so to speak. Yeah, no, 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 it's true. I, I lost a lot of friends, sadly, already. Yeah, it's The list is long, too long. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do this podcast and talk to alpinists all the time, and, and that's, you know, that's just a fact of life and a fact of death in, in the big mountains. But um, yeah. before we go too deep here, we're, we're already into, like, the <laughs> shaking our heads, wondering phase of the, of the interview. But um, so let's, let's take it back just a second. To, to again your beginnings you talked about climbing the Eiger at 18 I don't know if that remains a special ascent for you was it was it uh other than being the first did it have did you feel like it was an important moment for you yeah it's a, break, it's a breakthrough to climb the Eiger for me yeah Heckmeyer I had a lot of energy for sure um but I didn't have until then the the climbing partner which I could make the step forward I tried a lot of time on the northeast side uh, which is the Lauper route called. And this is a super condition-depending route. And we had often bad condition, too warm, too cold, and a storm came, storm came up. And finally, I um, I uh, was climbing with Uli on Young Spider a long, long day. 
and I uh, opened also a page and he opened a page and then uh, it was this super exposed page to the to the spider leg and I thought yeah I can try no worries <laughs> finally I uh, did the first part and after uh, yeah after maybe a couple of meters I could uh, protect myself we had there a bolt machine with us hang on a skyhook and try to get to this ice uh, spider leg. And finally, with this dry tooling climbing, I had a pretty big fall and I landed head head downwards. <laughs> and it was already three o'clock in the afternoon and Uli said, yeah, maybe it's time to go down because, you know, in the three o'clock, uh, the snow and rock fall starts because the sun hits the, the summit ice field. And yeah, this was a super intense day for me. And I uh, could observe the condition again in the Iger North face, in the Heckmeyer route, which I never climbed on this moment. And we rippled down to this big Iger window. And I just tried to find another climbing partner for the next day. And I called all my friends I ever climbed with. And then with, with an older friend who was already mountain guide, Marcel Frank, he uh, was ready to jump in, uh, in the car and drove up to Grindelwald and we met on Eiger Glacier and the next day we climbed the Heckmeyer route in a day. Uh, we took, I don't know, 15 to 18 hours, more more 18 <laughs> and we ended up uh, totally destroyed on the summit. It was way harder than we ever expected and also the way down and we slept on a, an Eiger Glacier in the toilet four o'clock in the morning. And from this moment, I was just blown by the lengths and the difficulty and the exposure of what the heck my route can can happen. And it was a new dim- dimension for me, for sure. Yeah, I mean, did it build respect for, for that era, for what those guys did, you know, with the tools they had and at the time? Yeah, it's crazy. Now, finally, uh, as I already said at the beginning, I'm not a big reader and I don't right. follow all the book of of Mester and Bonatti and who else. Right. But uh, if I climbed the route um, now, even more before, or even in Patagonia, I definitely love to know the story. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it was just really insane that uh, they climbed the mountains these days with this equipment. On the other hand, it's always, always hard to compare mountain ascents even in our days if you haven't been there in this season especially in this year with this equipment with this condition so i I have a big big respect but i learned it doesn't make sense to compare it's hard Mm -hmm. to imagine because it's too long ago and the mindset after the war or during the war and they felt undiable they were just on another on another planet you know they were willing to take all the risk and finally they were the force they did it yeah that's and, i mean that's not- an interesting thing that i was just thinking while you were talking literally is that i was like the other thing is that for whatever reason yeah they they seem to not i mean death was more likely than not and they still went up there you know we we all deal with the risk and and we I, on this show we talk about risk management and, and it feels like that era leading up to the actual scent yeah, they just threw caution out the door and, you know, it was summit or die kind of an attitude that uh, may- maybe that's been mythologized, but it, the statistics seem to back that up a little bit. Like, and, and you know, you mentioned the war and, and there was, you know, the period between the two wars, the great, the World War One and World War Two, you know, that also spawned those first attempts on Everest. And, 
a lot of those guys were veterans from World War One, and yeah. that war in particular, I think, made you have this whole different relationship with death. Um, if you have, if you were sort of in the trenches and things like that. But I, at the end, it was just a, an, uh, the right timing. There were really mm-hmm. strong climbers, and yeah. what I often underestimate that they really climbed hard back in the days. I mean, yeah. they were athletes. <laughs> yeah. So five plus is more six A now, and the leader is climbing free solo with a rope under his wrist. You know. <laughs> yeah. I was kind of surprised if I climbed the classic route. I really have to climb up here with this protection. <laughs> right. And then, yeah, I guess they were kind of mentally just better prepared to get through such a hassle. Yeah, yeah, sure. Their 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 daily lives were much harder than our yeah. daily lives. So yeah, exactly. I mean that that speaks to why like a lot of the you know the climbers that came out from behind the Iron Curtain in the sixties and seventies also seemed to be a lot tougher than the rest of the people. Um, it's it's pretty interesting. But um, let me ask you a little bit more more about your progression. Then I always have a question about when a climber decides to become a guide, decides that that may be a path for them. You know, there's all sorts of reasons people give for doing that. One of them is simply that I want to spend all my time in the mountains, but that also can backfire on people for whom, you know, guiding isn't really their calling. Um, if they're just doing it for the reasons of wanting to be in the mountains, it doesn't always work out that well. So when did you make that decision to pursue the life of a guide? For me, I, um, was with 10, no, I was 12. Uh, it was one of the rare summer holidays we had with my father and mother. We, we were in Sermat and he climbed the Matterhorn. I would love to climb with him, but I was not allowed. He climbed with some friends and I went up to the Hundley hut and it was pretty stressful for my mom because I was scrambling everywhere around. And finally, I could see these mountain guides who, who climbed the Matterhorn and they get paid. And I thought, that must be the best job ever, you know. You do whatever you love and you get paid. <laughs> so finally, I I, uh, I wanted to become a mountain guide since I was 12 years old. And if you have to do a first apprenticeship before you can start education as a mountain guide in Switzerland. That's why I did the, the carpenter first. And with, with 19... After the ski teacher uh, education, I started becoming a mountain guide. And I still realize I guided between 20 and 30 a lot. I guided 12 times the classic Ekmai route with clients. And uh, these days I start to guide a little bit more. And yeah, I have the combination to really love climbing for myself. <laughs> and this is amazing. <laughs> and if you ha- want to make big climbs happen like on the Eiger you you, ha- you need the time to be kind of a professional climber but from my natural I'm more uh, a mountain guide than an athlete because an athlete you you have a lot of you have to carry especially in Switzerland in the Alps a lot of pressure we have a lot of people that make a living out of it and it often looks way more funny than actually it is you know there's always uh, like some pressure there and yeah you're always kind of a target um, the people watch you if you come in a climbing garden, how hard you climb and all this stuff. And I'm not so hard as kind as you should be as, a, as an athlete. You also should have some skill for love to be in the central and you um, tell good stories and be a little bit of a narcissistic, you know. But I definitely um, dreamed about being an athlete to fulfill my dreams, but I couldn't understand the how high is the price to be an athlete and to be 
out there and have sometimes the pressure which is fair sometimes it's unfair and sometimes it's just people are greedy finally i um, find the balance and i did everything and i still have a sponsorship and i'm happy to sign a contract as long as i do stuff which i feel they're worth it to, to sponsor but i i don't want to hang on on this athlete being because it's too good to be in the mountains and i love to be to be honest and see see it objective how how high is my actual climbing level and how high is my willing to take risk and i guess as a professional athlete for me it's not about storytelling and just make it happen every year somehow i want to fulfill for myself a certain standard and i watch in the morning my in the mirror and if i call myself alpinist i want to be an alpinist and not a storyteller so yeah it's a, it's a long story but for and back i uh, for me, the perfect combination is the balance between those two. And these years, of which I only did professional alpinism and climbing, I was too focused, I guess. And also get maybe too much uh, inspired or influenced from Uli Steck. We, because I'm not Uli Steck. <laughs> he is uh, so dedicated and he, he never would be a mountain guide. He has no passion with low client, you know. He wants to push hard all the time. And for Uli, this was a fully right decision. But I guess many young Swiss people or in the Alps, we had a good influence from Uli, but also for some, it was not a good good influence for Uli because he wanted to make it too professional. And I, uh, it works very well for sport climbing. And that's why I love sport climbing. It's so honest, especially competition climbing. But in alpinism, it's... You have to be honest, but the, 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 the stopwatch is not always the right. And it's so much about a good friend and a good condition and to be ready. So alpinism is, doesn't never make sense to make it a competition out of it or getting Olympi Olympic. And Uli had this kind of vision, uh, which often lets young people, leads uh, young people to a wrong way. If we want to talk about specific climbs in your life, impossible for me to narrow them down. So, but I'm going to ask you, um, about, uh, one that it spanned, I think a little over a decade, um, you're interested in it. And, um, and that's the Arawa Spire yeah. in, in India. Can you tell me a little bit about where that initially fit into your, you know, your progression as a climber? And maybe we can talk a little bit about the story of, of being there and, and then coming back sometime later. Yeah. And why that place inspired you and where it came from. I mean, it was still my um, point to take the cross from uh, getting to an 8,000 meter peak or to climb mm. technical mountains, which has a super nice looking shape. And mm. I uh, had the offer to go to Everest. This was just after my mountain guide education with 22. Uh, or So what, what years about would this be? But this oh, was 2002. Okay, so early 2000s. Yeah, and I uh, I was four and back, and uh, finally I, I wanted to climb technical and to a new area with, with a good friend, and uh, he was my mountain guide uh, teacher. And we were so we went we were three guys, and uh, we went to this Garwal Himalaya, and it was my first expedition, and it was just uh, uh, Mick Fowler climbed the, the the there are three pillars climbed the uh, east pillar but the center pillar and the west pillar wasn't they weren't climbed so we went there and tried to climb these two north phases 
uh, actually the first, the, the central one. And yeah, we did this just in a classic um, style. We mixed, we did how we climb in the Alps. We climb as free as, as fast and as good as we can. And if it's getting too difficult, we start to A climb. And we did the first ascent of the central pier. And uh, later on a week, we could also climb the West Summit, also over this steep, steep rocky wall. And this was a pretty, pretty cool start to <laughs> climb in, on expeditions. And we get nominated for the Piole d'Or back in the days. And yeah, then I um, climbed a lot in Patagonia. I climbed in Yosemite. I learned better crack climbing. I learned better eight climb. I learned better free climb. And uh, finally, I was with Timo Gietl down in Patagonia. And I, I, I just uh, watched through my picture of my of my computer and uh, finally we I asked him if he could imagine to, to join me on an Arvaspire again to climb our route uh, again but in free climbing and yeah that's what, how we did Simon and I are still good friends and we climbed almost everything together and yeah, yeah we went back 2008 I guess and we had a photographer with us Daniel Arnen and uh, Simon and I went with skis to the base of the wall, started climbing and felt after the first PV not well acclimatized and decided to rebel down, wait some days and go back on the wall a little bit later. And when uh, we arrived with our skis to base camp, uh, we met our cook. He told us that uh, Daniel, the photographer, uh, disappeared in a crevasse because he walked up without skis. And he left our track because he has seen our uh, ABC tent uh, closer to the left. But there you could obviously see that there are a lot of crevasses and he was unroped. And yeah, in the night he went up to this crevasse. Simon and I and found the hole and started to repel down. And we could see it immediately. This is a super deep crevasse. And uh, I repel down maybe 20 meters. And it was super silent and, and cold. And you could see oh, everywhere this ice, stalactite hanging. And even the ice, which was uh, falling down, you never could find that they are hitting a ground. So it felt like this, this hole felt almost endless deep. And I went up to Simon and we didn't really have to talk. We knew we, we could feel that <laughs> there is almost no chance that Daniel is still alive and we yeah it was kind of a really dramatic moment we were on our knees in the front of this crevasse and it's blue crystal cold night and we were both crying for a while and then we continued our rescue to get, try to get lower and lower and uh, we couldn't make it down to him and we tried to repeat this uh, rescue on our two only for another four days so on the fourth day, we went to a little notch where some snow gets stuck. Then I found a broken pole from Daniel. And our rope was was uh, it was more than 70 meters until this point. And I uh, could, could um, <laughs> break this snow bridge and snow still fell down far to the bottom. And I couldn't see with my headlamps that there is any Daniel or any ground. And this was the moment which, which I pushed so hard and we also were pretty exposed about the, the ice which was hanging above us that we could get hurt or even bad injured from from this super weird crevasse we were hanging way below and 
this was the the point where we had to realize we we have to let go of Daniel. We will not bring him back home. And this was mm-hmm. a pretty dramatic moment. It would be a terrible thing to have to decide, but there's a point at which you do. You have to make those decisions. And, and uh, I mean, whether it's in searching for someone in an avalanche or anything like that, people have faced that decision. Um, how did it affect you uh, going forward uh, as a climber, or, you know, in the, in the months home uh, afterwards? I mean, it still was pretty intense because I was uh, in North Germany by Daniel's girlfriend and her mom, and uh, I wanted to explain her what's happening. And, uh, you know, if you come home as a professional alpinist and they never stand, were standing on a glacier, and you have to explain them that you not even make it down to <laughs> their son or their boyfriend, not even to bring you home, that's a pretty bad moment. And no, but uh, it took some time and I'm lucky that I'm kind of rooted uh, in the home valley, which I grown up by my parents. My father lives in a mountain farm with no reception and I'm surrounded still by, by really good friends. And yeah, I just take my time off. And uh, I was also in this moment always ready to let go of mountaineering. So if, if I don't feel it anymore, because mountaineering gives me a lot. But I also in these days, I was already aware that it takes you a lot. So you climb your whole life, but there is so much more to discover than just climbing mountains. But finally, I always found uh, it's the best thing I can do. I, I love to climb these mountains. And uh, I found energy and always the, 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 in the deepness to really do it for myself to go back on this mountain. And uh, I mean, I have the best moments in these mountains. I feel exposed. Everything which is unnecessary, which I have here in, in, in my flat. I mean, I have the reception, I get occupied. I, but in the mountains, finally, I, in, in a serious role, I just have to become focused. <laughs> this feels real. And often we are able to manage it well. And these are the best intense moments I had in my life. And standing with a friend on a summit, make it safely back home and have a home and have a, a girlfriend who's loving you and can share the, the other life next to climbing. This gives me a, a very good, sensible reason to climb mountains. And this is why I always went, also went back to Arvo Spire a third time. But this time less for an athlete performance to climb the wall free, which we finally did. But it was more for me because I get a, a little amulet from, from Daniel's girlfriend. And finally, a very good friend, Frank Kretschmann, which uh, I climbed a lot, and he's a photographer and filmmaker. He actually should be for Daniel with us on a second expedition, but he, he finally he became a father. And so that's why Daniel came on a second expedition. And then Frankie said he would join us, and he was a good friend of Daniel, and then had this goal for me to bring this amulet from Daniel to the summit to finally uh, close this story for me because I was really motivated to go up to the summit and not if it's get difficult to just move on to another one. And so we went back, Simon and me, and climbed this north face again, which is cold and technical. It was not that much fun to get up. Uh, we climbed it free. It was not for Yosemite grade. It was not that hard, maybe. <laughs> 5'11", <laughs> but on this altitude, it feels pretty hard. 
and uh, yeah, we make it to the summit free. And I, we uh, was hanging with a little uh, rope, uh, Daniel's amulet on a, on the summit of Arvaspire. And for me, this uh, was a really important moment to to be in peace with the situation that Daniel is still on Arvaspire on the glacier. Simon Gettel, is that how you pronounce Gettel, it? Yeah, Gettel is yeah, difficult Gettel. to pronounce. Yeah, <laughs> Simon Gettel is someone whose name pops up. He's Italian, right? Is that he's right, Italian, yeah. He lives in okay. the Dolomites, yeah. He speaks okay. a, a weird Tyrolean dialect, and, and that's okay. the only language he speaks, but he's <laughs> one of the best guys I know, yeah. Yes, I mean, t tell me a little bit about, you know, as an example of someone, you know, who's been a solid partner for you, as an example for what you look for in a partner, these climbs are serious. These expeditions are long. The expeditions themselves, I mean, have their risks without even ever going climbing. So you have to be with the right person in a you know way more than you know going sport climbing or going mm -hmm. bouldering or. So how do you sort of filter and and decide, or more likely, how did it just happen that that these strong partners came into your life and maybe using Simon as an example of, of his characteristics that make it worth uh, worth picking up the phone and, and calling him when you can. I would say I was really lucky uh, with my climbing partners all my life and I'm happy that I'm mainly a, a, a climber who loves climbing a team. It's also cool to climb alone in the mountains. It's more intense, but I guess it's more difficult. Uh, for me, it has kind of a it's more complete if I climb with a strong partner, technical route, because both has to fit. We are two egoists. Uh, we are two people. Uh, it has to fit everything. So to climb alone is more or less in this day, if you know to climb alone mountains, almost a little easier, I would say. So this is just a short <laughs> uh, B-side. I'm smiling. I'm smiling because I sort of agree you know, um, I, 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 I love to climb with my Grigri yeah, and I yeah. climb five plus yeah. without the rope. No worries. Right in solid rock but then um, i have a lot of ideas to climb a lot in mountains but to climb on a more serious mountain together is getting more difficult yeah. and i realize this more and more but i often would say people climb alone because it's just easier to climb alone but uh, i had really good mentors i climbed with michael bitelka back in the days he's for me a climbing legend he's the strongest alpinist i ever met is this czech he was moving from Czechoslovakia to Interlaken and he opened the hardest route on Wendenstöcke and on Eiger and he opened Corazon on the East Pillar of Fitzroy and I climbed with him in Patagonia, I climbed with him on the Eiger and then I have Clif Christoph Heinz, is the, is the mentor from the Dolomites, he did the badass first ascent in the Dolomites, he climbed on his honeymoon uh, Fitzroy, Rio Blanco <laughs> backwards in 11 hours alone, still one of the fastest so he's still married. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's more the question. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. No, and I was. Oh, I, got, I was lucky. A great honeymoon. I'm just gonna go climb the sea by myself, baby. You'll be yeah, fine. Yeah. No. Uh, he's he's one of the most intuitive climbers I ever met. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. And I mean, I had influence on Robert Jasper. I had influence of Walter Hungerbühler. He was the, the guy who first climbed Ferrari route solo. So these were my mentors and uh, I learned a lot from them. And uh, once I want to climb the six north phases in the winter uh, while I was guiding 2008 and I wanted to climb the Trecime north phase uh, with Christoph Heinz and uh, we started, but he felt really sick. So um, he had to bail. 
And I was back in Bruneck in the Dolomites and uh, Fortlet thought if I try alone with the rope, but then he said, ah, you should call this Simon. He's super motivated. And I called him. We met in the morning uh, by this gas station, Erna's gas station called, which every mountain guide has his coffee and it's just a meeting point. We went up to the Drechima. We climbed it. We were went back uh, four o'clock again by Erna for another coffee. And this was our first climb together. And even if I just realized, understood later on that uh, if I speak my Swiss dialect and Simon speaks his Arntal dialect, I always thought, okay, he speaks dialect and I speak dialect. I understand him, but he will understand me for sure. But later on in Patagonia on a bad storm, when I started to speak Swiss German, and in Chalten, when we were drinking beer and having fun, he was always fine with my dialect. And he said, yeah, yeah, it's okay, Roger. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He always said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and back on the summit, he said, ah, Roger, now you have to speak high German with me. Others, others then I get, I get mad. And uh, since then, I always have to speak my Swiss high German. But we, uh, we understand each other without really the same language. I mean, it's just... Um, he feels like a little brother and he's just in his bubble pretty much. I mean, he learned to be a professional mountain guide to make an athlete to make a living out of it. He can make really good stories and footage and videos, but he loves to be exposed in the mountain and he's not the best sport climber, but he uh, learned to handle these Dolomites, blitter, techie, climbing, sketchy, committed and he has the heart on the right side and to find a climbing partner like Simon and did 12 expeditions and five first ascents and always coming back home as friends. Like now we went back on Meru a second time, which I tried with John Villanueva and Mathieu Menadier. And I realize again to climb big mountains, it's just a matter of being surrounded with the good partners. And that's the key for sure. And as I said at the beginning, I was always super lucky. And uh, I would say even you're a really good solo mountaineer or you're really lucky in having good good climbing partners. And that's what I am. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, one of the things too that you, I think when I was reading some other interviews and things like that is is the word fun, enjoying yourself and, and having fun uh, came up time and again. And, and as soon <laughs> yeah. as, you know, and it's honestly like as soon as the screen came on it was like oh yeah that guy has a good big smile on his face and 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 he's ready to go and it's an interesting concept because we i don't know if if you know this sort of meme resonates in in your community but the idea of the type 2 fun has been uh has been this meme of the last few years of like yeah it's 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 fun sort of it's fun afterwards it's you know there's times when you you wish you weren't there because you're freezing and in whatever the weather the storm's coming in but the fun part of alpinism is again it's just this like interesting concept and i i actually kind of wanted to ask you what that means to you to have fun on an expedition to have fun on a difficult climb have fun even in a serious situation i guess that's one of the key points i started climbing and some young um, climbing partners if it became really serious they became unfunny so they start to almost <laughs> yell and right. shout and this felt really uh, i'm i love to have a harmony and with 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 all these partners even if the with michael bitelka on the rope on the way up to torek we had a broken rope halfway up and there was just 
yeah, it's how it is. And we started to taping it and keep climbing. And with Simon, if he's hurting his feet or is uh, hitting his leg really bad and he start to bleed or uh, we, we ended up in a storm, he's just yelling, saying to me, it's fine. It means it's, it's, it's nice. Ironically, right. it's nice. And uh, often we, uh, back in the days, we started to, uh, in Patagonia has these, uh, uh, these, these social moments. We had sometimes a cigarette with us, even if we, we didn't really smoke. But we calmed down and we were in a stressful situation and we could start to think, what is the next step really we have to do before in this shitty moment we do a wrong decision or we were using snuff tobacco or Simon was willing to, to bring a beer up to Passa Superior. And we uh, always, always this kind of little bit of humor like with Simon Antematten, the strong Sir Matten guys, they had, they always don't take it so, so serious. They are, they know it's serious, but they can handle it very well. And like, like the same with, with, uh, with the Belgian guys, I climbed uh, quite a lot with John Villanueva, uh, with Nico, they, they always keep the fun alive. And uh, I guess that's the key because every, every time once a while in a big climb, you get in a moment where it's really unfunny and it hurts. And if you can keep some fun up and make a joke out of the situation, it's just shitty anyway. And then it calms you down and you keep doing the right decisions. And yeah. A, a good friend of mine always, an alpinist, always said that you can't put a price on morale and, <laughs> uh, and, and lived by that. And, and a, a beer popping out of a pack and in the middle of a of a hard situation is, uh, you know, that's a morale builder, <laughs> yeah. if you will. So yeah, I also uh, have some fun <laughs> that cigarette <laughs> or fun food. You know, a, a right sausage in the right moment. All this superfood helps a lot, but you you keep the mood. You have to keep the mood high. You know, somehow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cheese and sausage. It's cheese in, and you sausage. Know, and it's what fueled. It's what fueled all those old ascents we were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so it has to still work in some sense, right? So one of the things. You know, I like to talk to climbers from Europe or, or any other sort of climbing community. There's a little bit about the differences and, and it can be subtle, you know, when you, when you show up to a place, I know you've climbed in Yosemite a fair bit and uh, sort of dip into an American, in that case, climbing culture that's, it's, it's set in these patterns that are so distinct and have been there for decades and decades. It's like the faces change, but the, the kind of attitudes don't. I was kind of wondering about your impressions of of maybe coming into Yosemite for the first time. And again, like even if you don't really follow the history, I think you can't be a climber without understanding what, you know, Yosemite, for example, means to the climbing world and at least have whispers in your head of of some of the great stories and, and climbers that came out of there. So what what are your impressions or what were your impressions like the first time you came to the States came or walked into the a, a climbing community like that? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I mean, 2003 was my first trip to Yosemite. And uh, like I started climbing in the Alps, I had no idea about climbing history and climbing technique. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's kind of pretty, pretty stupid. But uh, it's always fun part two afterwards. <laughs> But then later on, I was maybe seven or eight times in Yosemite Valley. And of course, I, uh, I start to read more and I get these nice guidebooks and I met a lot of good people and being in a camp four and listening to, I'm, I mean, I was, I, knowing, I was knowing Dean Potter pretty well 
still mm -hmm. then from Yosemite and Patagonia and the Americans are really good in telling stories with the Valley Uprising. You start getting more into it. And uh, then I felt a way, a way bigger respect about this granny climbing because uh, we are kind of really good all-around mountaineering climbers and good limestone mm -hmm. climbers in this technique, which um, skyhooking and go for it and place another bolt. But I always felt more inspired about which I was not so good in climbing a cap fast and smooth and free climb. And uh, I always get my ass kicked so bad. The first two weeks I had two tight shoes and uh, I couldn't climb off with. And uh, I, I, I compared 5'11 with, with the French grade. And uh, normally I climb 7C without a big problem 8A if I'm in a good shape. <laughs> But here it's not. <laughs> and I did all this mistake you ever could do as a young climber in, in the Yosemite. So I tried to climb yeah, this Astro Man. I climbed to climb Freerider on site, which I had no chance with Prima Ballerina shoes and uh, <laughs> with shorts and with, with shirt. And <laughs> so, yeah, I know. But uh, still, this year I was back in Yosemite and I climbed again this nose uh, for the third time. And yeah, I climbed it. I climbed it uh, two times in a day. Now I climbed with my girlfriend with holing, and we had, of course, two and a half days. And yeah, these all these local sour climbers, they just crash beside you and climbing in in a half a day. That's just normal. And I still love how confident they feel in this five ten, five eleven, five twelve, which we we don't have the meters of this proper granite, um, slappy, slippery climbing and uh, it's for me it's always more inspiring which i'm weaker in i i, I want to tell it, you, you this story because uh, i was listening to to alex honnold's mm -hmm. podcast as well and they describes about uh technique converse to power with uh, this strong 60 year old sport climber from vegas mm -hmm. and uh, alex on one point when i was listening while driving a car is setting me a uh, was about the the hard the harding slot on on Astroman to imagine you climb this on layback, and uh, he is such an awkward uh, imagination to climb it. And two thousand and three, when I went up and I had no mentor in the Yosemite climbing, uh, I was stuck there in this harding slot. Uh, no below, actually, you can easy easy rest. And I looked up to this huge slot and had fucking no idea how you, how you mentioned to climb <laughs> climb this harding slot. <laughs> And yeah, me and I had uh, my lady girlfriend, uh, no, not girlfriend, mountain guide friend with me. And I said to Mary, well, oh, I will try to get out and lay back. And I went out and I start to sweat in the sunrise and I tried to climb back. And then I was, I realized like, I, I have no chance to climb it back. And these days I was often going fully in, like it was 24. And I start climbing, keeping up on this edge on the harping slot. <laughs> And it get harder and harder, and I was sweaty. I was screaming. I was I was my hardest climbing moment ever. I really almost started vomiting at the anchor. I I did like a, a last like on sport climbing in Kalimnos, a last last desperate tiny move to the last halt, and I could grab it. So this was my most extreme intense climbing moment ever to climb this fucking. <laughs> Harding slot. I never went back on it because I still so traumatized about. It. But I just remember when Alex said about 
is there a guy out there who probably climbed the Astroman on layback? Who could be so stupid? I just had to start a big smile. And maybe I did remember when I speak with you, I, I tell you the story on a short moment. <laughs> That's awesome. And what's not in there is how run out you were. Because there, at that point, I mean, the rope just disappears down the slot, right? Like there's nothing... Yeah, this, in this, there. Uh, <laughs> I, I made me have this. I never, I didn't have a, a number four or five, and even not a six. So uh, I don't even think that was what fit either. So yeah, you're just no, you're gonna I, take I, a huge I had, whipper. I had a green down there and went out, and the rope goes. Uh, that's more than ten meters. You're out there. Yeah. For sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It, That'd be insane. It's a fight there for life because you know if you fall, that the holiday is. Maybe only the holidays over. Maybe you climb your career. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's how I get my ass kicked so many times in the 70s <laughs> and have a lot of these stories in. Whoa. Yeah, it's good. I love it. That's I love to get my ass kicked. That's why I love Yosemite, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you've been to Yosemite a whole bunch of times, um, and obviously it influenced how you climb. Talk yeah. about learning to climb cracks and learning to climb on granite. Was there any sort of cultural influence? You know, you mentioned being able to look at these these just super confident climbers that are so casual on these sorts of things. Um, do you ever, when you go to different climbing cultures, what do you take back as far as like just the influence of attitudes about climbing, about yeah. how it's done, about um, oh, sure. how to approach it and things like that? For me, the, the American culture has kind of a bigger influence. I mean... The people uh, seems to be more relaxed, and uh, that's why I also love to climb in uh, in the US and uh, in, in in Canada. And often I feel like we're in Europe; everything is so tight, and we are so close to each other. And the, the valleys are so deep, and there's so many people in. There is not the room, and, and the people are too close to each other. And the American climbers, even if you met them, then later on in Patagonia. Some of them they take is take it really serious, but often they're more chilled. And of course, the the, the the American language sounds as a Swiss relaxed, more cool. Uh, if they speak, it sounds relaxed and confident. The professional culture is uh, lower. I feel there back in the days there were people that just climbed for them for nothing for for, um, for food. <laughs> Example in the SAR team, and we in Europe we have more the culture to have more backups, insurance, mm -hmm. healthcare, mm -hmm. and my older sister always said to me, "How can you can you live like this? You have not uh, back in the days, and if you're older, you have not a, a, a rent with sixty five because I and I I still live like an American climber, I felt like, or people in Patagonia. <laughs> and But we had this influence, like I would say, from these athletes. I mean, we have this Roger Federer, we have these uh, ski racers, we have this, it's it's more like a, like a metaphor, we have this Uli Steck. <laughs> and he's like a, really a machine, he's workaholic. I belong more to the culture, I was more inspired to go for it and living your climbing dreams. And I really was always really... Uh, inspired and love to hang out with these American climbers. And later on, I could learn a lot from Rolo Caribotti. He also climbed a lot in, in Yosemite. And I was more attracted in, uh, if I was in Yosemite or, or Patagonia to hang out with Americans or Canadians than with the 
with the Europeans, actually. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. Um, well, thanks. Uh, made it sound good. I, you know, sort of agree with that to a certain extent of what I've seen as well. And maybe it is like a. I mean, I wouldn't say lack of professionalism, but professional climbing in the United States, even at the highest levels, is again nothing compared to the sort of level of fame and pressure that can can come with um, a professional climbing in in Europe. And you know, people we keep mentioning Yuli, but I mean, we can talk about Yanya Gambret, you know, too, like these international, you know, full on hyper celebrities with their faces and names everywhere you know that almost doesn't exist in north america that level of fame that crosses over into into mainstream uh mm. being sort of mainstream famous so but at the end i guess you just you 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 have just way more people and way more climbers and uh i i feel like um in the whole history, there were always these extraordinary people they brought the climbing further and often they're switching back and forth from from North America to the Alps. Maybe we had mm-hmm. it on both sides, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, often it's more in, more inter- inspiring to to see further than closer. You know, we have so I, I I realize now I climb with the biggest mentors you can imagine in the Alps, like you would climb with Warren Harding. You know, right. I had these climbers, but I didn't understood. I always was looking for people from the US, like uh, I mean Tommy. Caldwell for sure, and now sure. Alex Honnold, and I know this guy, but uh, I just we, we just have the same people at home, and I was for a while more inspired by these people. They they pushed the climbing to such another level. I guess well, it's it's, just- it's interesting that you mentioned you know people who switched venues and and could come and do amazing things in both sides because you know I've often said on here that that the history of Yosemite. Two two Bavarians had to show up to kind of kick some stuff loose and and open the door for for free climbing on El Cap because I think at that time the culture was just sort of stuck in in this repetition and and the Hubers had to had to come and and be yeah. be the new eyes that said okay here's what can ha- actually happen and and that that's an interesting thing about cultures everywhere is that they can't get into you know setting up rules for themselves that you're not allowed to break or or setting up kind of these ceilings that that nobody wants to go past i mean even the history of grading where no one wanted to go to 510 you know and so now yosemite has these 59 pluses that that'll uh you know <laughs> That'll basically grind you in, in yeah. the dust, yeah. you know. So um, it's just an interesting perspective, and a thing I like to talk about is these yeah. these sort of culture integrations that happen. Yeah, yeah. but I, I just, oh, I mean, for and back, uh, Alex was kind of really um, extraordinary good climber, mm-hmm. and it was the right timing. He was just, he is a super smart guy. I climbed with him my my first time in Patagonia. I climbed with him. Um, yeah, then he just climbed the Hustle Brandle free solo, and he's a he's a mathematician guy, you know. He he counts, and yeah, it's really inspiring what Alex did in Yosemite and Thomas as well for a long time. But there was just this little little open door, and just mm-hmm. at the right timing, it was a coincidence con- con- uh, con- uh, of luck because mm-hmm. I, I thought the Americans were just there. It was just these couple of years, nobody really pushed. 
And this can happen now in Chamonix or in, in, in Jaeger. And now the world becomes more and more international that so many Americans live in Chamonix and now the Chamonix people go and climb in Yosemite. Yeah, but Alex and Thomas just hit this little gap. Mm-hmm. And later on, uh, yeah, they just start to to wake up the way more Americans. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if... Uh, how much that Tommy get influenced of these guys or he had other mentors for sure. There's an expedition that comes up again, sort of stands out, a expedition to Greenland in 2010. Yes. Um, is that is that a standout expedition in your mind as well? I feel like climbing this Grundwigskirchen is a 1,400 meter wall, mm-hmm. Virgin. And we're pretty lucky we could climb this wall on free climbing. And we had a great team. Simon was with us, Daniel. Kopp from Zillertal and Thomas Ulrich, he's a mountain guy too. He's an expedition specialist and we're kind of just of an amazing, good team within a pretty cool place. And uh, later on, I climbed so many good climbs, which uh, if it went too smoothly, I uh, I just take it as grand, uh, granted, you know. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, yeah. <laughs> It went too easy. Oh, really? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, if I um, I remember way more when I I grown way more on a Japanese directissimo on the Eiger North Face, which I climbed almost free on the first time with Simon two thousand and three, and it took me six other seasons with uh, Robert Jasper to climb this missing fourth last pitch on the summit free, which we need to have all the condition and the shape. And for me, this is um, Greenland is from from the experience and from the good good memory, amazing. But it's not who made me another climber. Well, tell me a little bit more about the the Japanese direct. It it's a, a route I think from the late '60s in the Maw, in the sort of middle of the Eiger, an important ascent at the time. I, I think again one of these ascents that you know started to in a sense, like break the myth a little bit or open the impossibles on, on the Iger. And there's sort of a series of those through the 50s and 60s. But uh, tell me a little bit about that Japanese direct and what inspired you about it and, and a little bit more about the learning that, that you got from it. But I started to try to there to, uh, climb a winter ascent. And uh, there is this 250 meter slightly overhanging super technical wall which is called the uh, rote flu red wall right. and uh, yeah this day the guy 1969 it took them two weeks and uh, to aid up finally they just did a bolt ladder up there with these five or four mil pitons and uh, we ate it up and we uh, on the last pitch we uh, hold up our back and we lost our back and we had a cold bb on top of the rote flu and the next morning we uh, had to repel down because we had no ice gear. And uh, I could see in the daylight that this is just an amazing limestone wall, which it made sense for me to go back and try to climb free. And I asked Simon Antemarten, and we spent a lot of time in this road to flu to find a free climbing variation. And we, we had the rule to not add any bolts. So, uh, yeah, it took us a long time in this amazing summer, 2003. And finally, we climbed it to the top total in uh, two days. And on the very top on a Sphinx pillar, this kind of a 6C, which is uh, low quality rock and bad protectable. And uh, I ate it up finally. I didn't 
went um, Muerte and I went up safely and we had also Rockfall because it was super warm. And we were just super lucky that we just went up through this wall. And in this moment, we didn't really care about that. We didn't climb uh, this last pitch, uh, Red Point, and we went to the summit. And uh, when I look back, this was one of the best ascents I did on the Eiger compared to the boldness and the luck and the grit we had. And yeah, we missed one pitch, about the 45. <laughs> and... <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I feel yeah, sometimes it's all overgraded the red point in big right. serious mountains right this is a little b-side story I feel it like um, it's always really really important that you um, explain how it really was you have to be super honest it's important free climbing red point climbing but sometimes red point climbing if it this is not in Retikon on Silbergeier, it comes to bigger mountains like on the Eiger or in the Himalaya or in, in Patagonia. If there is missing a one red point, the big media, 8A and U, they don't care about if there is missing one red point on 45 pitch. And we get quite a bad influence of um, making it happen to climb all the, the routes free. And if you missed one pitch, it, it was just in, almost for nothing. And that's why I feel like young people also on the Eiger, sometimes they bailed on bigger routes because they underestimated and they didn't try to get up and learned and took more effort and tried an easier route, which they could send and red point and they had a big article. So that's just a little B-side story. Uh, so I really feel like it's cool to climb everything free <laughs> if it makes sense. But to climb as, as much free as possible, this should sometimes become more attention, I feel like. And to, to climb six more years with Robert Jasper, to climb this, we did a little more director variation on the red or the road, the flu, and finally you had to fit everything together to have the right condition. And finally I could climb this 6C free. I learned a lot in the mountain. I, in the Eiger, I spent so much time I was more relaxed. I could protect better. I was less stressed. So at the end, it was not so hard. I could feel that I did a step forward as a mountaineer climbing in this alpine limestone, serious, shady, wet, icy, dry. In this kind of climbing, I was on another level. But compare again, 2003... This was just amazing. And 2009, we did the first repetition of the Japanese and we had quite the big news in the Alps. But uh, for me, it doesn't make sense because the big news should be 2003. And with the amount of time we spent for six other seasons to climb one more Petri is almost ridiculous. So we should go to Yosemite or to, <laughs> to the Karakorum and climb more. So right. sometimes, uh, yeah, that's that's my story about the Japanese direct on 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 the Eiger. Yeah. yeah, then you it's like I always say it's like you get to the point where you know the old time card that you punch when you used to go to work. I don't know if you ever had to do that. Yeah. But you know, you press it and it punches your time. It's like you got to set one of those up at the bottom because that's kind of what it starts to feel like. You're yeah. like, all right, here we go again. Yeah, <laughs> no. Like, no, we are <laughs> back to work. <laughs> honestly, I could say um sometimes I'm a little bit um really proud about the Japanese and I mm -hmm. really have this good side that I have, a, I have a hard time to letting go a project which inspires me mm -hmm. so sometimes it also makes, make, would make more sense to move on and let it be as, 
But um, beside this time we spent and Bibi on the Eiger, if it, the Japanese was wet, we started to open the route, which is now the nicest multi-pitch route on the Eiger. This is Odyssey. So if I'm honestly, it's we did in this six years almost the B-side project. So right. And now this is really amazing free climb kind of series up to 8A. And uh, yeah, that's the full story, actually. Real quick, though, you talked about imposing the, the rule to not put any bolts in on, on uh, the Japanese on the rope flu. Like, what did that climbing look like then? Are you banging in pitons on the go? Are you, I mean, what did that climbing look like? It sounds, it sounds intense. Yeah, no, it is something like that. Tense, but after a couple of days, you get used to um, the Eiger North face that there is on the left mm -hmm. side on the Hinterstöße, some rockfall, and uh, you get close to the wall, and sometimes you have some rockfall over the wall, but you, it's deep enough. And uh, th there are a lot of old bad pitons. If you clip them all, <laughs> there is a high chance that a lot of them hold you fall <laughs> sure. and on the anchor we, we uh, were kind of advanced enough that we find with uh with camelots and some pitons a good enough anchor that the anchor is safe mm -hmm. uh, but it's still um i would say more sketchy and if you would just add some super good steel bolts the whole spirit of this climb would be gone i feel like because i know i for me, I'm not the best climber, but I climb almost in the mountains, obligatory the same rate that in sport. And that's what I did the whole life. That's why I'm good in it. That's why I'm not a better sport climber. And um, now, back in the days, we had a long discussion with Robert that we, what, what's, what's the next generation is doing with it? Because they say there were bolts, we should add them. And we did the decision that we added two proper bolts on the belay anchors that there is hopefully no need to add bolts in the middle of the of the of the eight of the eight later. So so, but right now nobody repeated this route. And uh, but I guess for a uh, for a really strong sport climber, which uh, many out there, that's uh, uh, the road to flute to climb up to maybe eight a maybe seventy plus. It's really fun climbing. It's good. But to climb now the top part, um, yeah, the skills to have everything on one go, it's, I guess, yeah, in, even if you have more stronger sport climbers, you have no, more climbers there willing to combine both sides of alpinism and sport climbing. So, you know, you, you're 45, is that what you said? Yeah, 45 this yeah. August. So, um, so you just turned 45. Uh, we've been reflecting on, you know, your your survival being never guaranteed to get to get to this point. It's not what we typically would say is an old age. Um, I'm, I'm seven years older than that. And yet within the style of climbing that you do and, and within climbing, you're, you're creeping to that other side, uh, a place that you never thought you thought about when you were in your twenties. Um, someone who can reflect on, you know, multiple expeditions, close calls, lost friends, a climbing community that's changed the Iger itself a moment maybe to reflect on how much that has changed you know mm -hmm. just due due to climate change and and uh yeah you know it's it's a face that that i think has probably seen very very dramatic changes just since you started yeah, climbing on it definitely um so yeah a moment of reflection you know at the ripe old age of 45 yeah <laughs> uh you know what do you, what do you think about um in terms of keeping going with this lifestyle 
um, what it's taken from you, what it's given you. Um, mm-hmm. You know, are are you the type of person that finds themselves up at your dad's farm, disconnected and reflecting on this uh, life that you've led? <laughs> oh, I, uh, I mean, I had a pretty good life until here, and I'm super happy that I'm healthy. I mean, that's cool. Huh? Mm-hmm. I can walk, I can climb, and uh, deep in myself, I realized that has a super big price. Uh, to spend all your life in the mountains because there, as I said already, there would be way more to discover in this world than just climbing mountains. But I love it and I still feel that this was the right choice, but I don't under, overestimate it to be a climber and alpinist. We're just human and often we're pretty egoistic and we do always stuff for ourselves. You know, we need support, we need climbing partners, we need, <laughs> we need sponsors, we need clients, whatever. And I love to give something back just a natural cirque. I'm really happy to give some advices to to younger climbers if they want to listen. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. I was super happy that I lucky and thankful that I had good mentors. They still wanted to climb with me. I could carry more, climb faster, but they had the strategy and the tactic. And I would love to keep a good climbing spirit. And um, I mean, it's just because I love it. It's somehow senseless to speak a lot about climbing but somehow that's also because i love to be here in this podcast i feel like uh, we are a small culture and we will be we rolling on and it's always the same but we have to be, learn from each other and, and we have the chance to speak more openly from north america to yelps and force and back and and we know each other i know so many climbers and just be m- more honest i would love that the people the mountaineer the idols are a little bit more humble a little bit less narcissistic. Everybody has a little part of narcissism. But if you can see this, that you have it, it's fine. But if you don't recognize it, we are just surrounded by egoists and we shouldn't have more people. They're more more open and more lawful and love. I mean, that's what David Lama said. We don't need more successful people on this planet. We need more people with, with love to the next person. And yeah... Sometimes I'm almost tired of all this communication and the the, the egoistic people and climber and all what happened on the mountain. But somehow um, it's a part of me and I love it too. And um, I want to do my best to to give something back as good as I can as a climbing friend. Don't be too loud. But if if you have really something important you want to say, just say it and uh, I guess we have a huge privilege and one of the best uh, activity which we can do as a healthy people which love mountains and climbing. And the cool thing is that it's so wide. It's so wide, you know, from a solo alpinist like Colin Haley loves to do it to a sport climber in Kalimnos to the strong boulder guys but we all love the same and that we understand each other a little bit better this is which i love i can i can help in the future and at the end i would love to become old you know <laughs> i often feel like 45 you haven't done it but i still love to have some dreams and fulfill some project i was still dreaming to do the fitzroy traverse i climbed all the mountains there two times fitzroy and three times Torre, but it's maybe Maybe it's gone, but I still would love to climb hard, long multi-pitch routes. And I still love sport climbing. And I still love if the conditions are good for a good ice route. And I still dream to go to Karakorum. And 
I'm still guiding and I, I, I'm flying a lot and paragliding and I, I want to make myself aware that I bring it back home and many older friends like Erhard Loretan or Norbert Jos or Uli Steck, they, they uh, now Hermano Salvatero died with 65. He was an idol of mine. He, I, I, I met him 2002 in Patagonia the first time. He did all the badass first ascent of Cerro Torre and now he died with a client on a on an easy climb. So we are all in the same boat and we have to stay alive and speak with each other in a good way, but don't take it too serious and, and have some fun and have some self, self-ironic, I guess that's, that's what I try to keep it up. It's, uh, it's like, I don't know, eight in the evening there or something like that. Yeah. What, what's the next thing you're going to climb? Oh, I uh, climb Port Routier on my local cliff. Um, it's mm-hmm. on a Panina Pass. It's heights on two thousand meter, and yeah, I mean, I am working on. You my... headed there tomorrow? Mm, no, tomorrow I'm a little bit in a shitty situation. I I have big honor to give a new presentation about the six North oh. spaces, which I did with Simon in a row. But I get so stuck in my computer, and <laughs> I am scrolling pictures for and back, and I don't get any further. And yesterday I could I could guide an easy climb in my, my local uh, climbing area, eight pitch, and it was just a super good day in this super good fall weather. So uh, no, I'm get stuck in a computer in this good weather, and maybe traveling to my friend Frank Kretschmann to Nuremberg, maybe helping me a little bit to get out of the mess. And uh, I met Alex Megos again and Dicky Corp <laughs> and some friends. <laughs> <laughs> right on. All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to Roger for connecting, blowing off, making his slideshow to talk with us for a little while. I was happy to be his procrastination. And if you want to find out more about Roger Shaley, you can follow him on Instagram. He spells that Roger Shaley, S-C-H-A-E-L-I, though I've seen it some places with an A and an umlaut. I think he got rid of the umlaut for us English speakers, so we don't have to dig around on our keyboards find how to make an umlaut. Also, I make fun of climbers for having out-of-date websites, but Rogers is kind of amazing. It opens with some drone footage of him, I believe somewhere on the Eiger, and uh, there's a lot of great stuff on there. Great footage, great photographs, updated trip reports. Not the usual climber blog post from 2017 that says, well, I haven't posted in a while. Anyhow, check that out. It's rogershaley.ch. But if you Google Roger Shaley, no matter how you spell it, you'll probably find his stuff. And I loved in that interview some of the words that he made up. My favorite one was undiable. Much easier to say than immortal and much more descriptive. I think much more accurate to climbing, undiable. It's more frank, less mythology. I almost named the episode undiable, but I don't want to make fun. All right, folks, it's November, the dark time. Ice climbing is on the plate for a lot of people out there. Not necessarily for me, at least not till February when I go to the Michigan Ice Fest. In the meantime, the western slope of Colorado has great winter climbing. Winter rock climbing, that is. So whether you're a sun seeker or if you're hiding out in some deep, dark gully, don't forget to check your knots. <laughs>